Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. I'm curious if you have ever heard the legend of Gellert the dog. Uh, the story goes that in the 13th century, there was a prince, Prince Lulin, and he had many hunting dogs. And one day, the prince was going out for a hunt, and he blew his horn to gather his hunting dogs together, and his favorite dog, Gellert, did not come. Uh, he still went out for the hunt, and as he was coming home from the hunt, his favorite dog, Gellert, ran out to meet him and had blood on his, on his nose. The prince was worried that Gellert had attacked his one-year-old child, uh, who would have been in his nursery. And so immediately the prince ran to his son's room. He saw the, uh, the, the, the uh, what's, what's the baby sleep? The crib turned upside down, blood splattered on the wall, and he thought the worst of his fears had come true. And unable to find his child, he took his sword and thrust it through the heart of his dog, Gellert. And as Gellert whimpered and died, he suddenly heard the cry of a child. It was the cry of his son, uh, who was underneath the cradle, unharmed. And as he lifted up the cradle, he saw behind the cradle this great wolf that Gellert had killed in protecting the child. See, the prince saw blood. He assumed the worst of his hound, that his dog was just a savage killer. And he killed him. He judged him without knowing the rest of the story or the rest of the context. I mention that story because in today's passage, there will be blood on King David's hands. There will be a lot of blood on King David's hands. And we will read about war stories that will make many of us uncomfortable. But as in the story of Gellert the dog, there is more to the story than what we see at first. And so we want to dive deep into this passage and understand what God is up to and how there is more than just killing going on in this chapter. It is, it is, a, it is a chapter that maybe shocks us that it's even in the Bible, but this is a part of our story. So if you would, please open up to 2 Samuel chapter 8. If you're in the Red Bible, it is page 260 in the Red Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you will absolutely need to keep it open during the sermon if you would. Uh, today's passage details the military conquest of David and Israel as they expand their territory to cover over the promised land. And as we read this, we again may be appalled at what we, um, what we learn. Um, and we may ask ourselves the question, is, is David, is King David just a greedy, ruthless murderer? Uh, is God just a twisted killer? But again, diving deeper will help us see more and more what God is up to in this passage. So let's start just by looking at the first six verses of 2 Samuel chapter 8. 
After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methag Ammah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezar, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, king struck down, sorry, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus and the Syrians because became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Let's pray. Lord, we come to a passage today that is maybe hard for us to wrestle with. And so God, pray through the grace of your spirit that we might see the glorious things that you are up to, even in the midst of these tragedies of wars, Lord, and how are you are using them to accomplish your promises and your purposes towards your people. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I come to chapters like 2 Samuel chapter 8 in my personal devotional time, uh, often I just read really quick to try to get through it because it's confusing, because it seems really sad, and I'm hoping to get to a chapter that is happier and makes more sense. Maybe you do the same thing when you come to chapters like this, but again, as we dive deeper into this passage, we're going to notice some really important things about who God is and what he is doing for his people in that day and today as well. And so we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 and look at three aspects of this kingdom. We're going to look at the expansion of the kingdom, the hero of the kingdom, and the way of the kingdom. So we'll look at expansion, hero, and the way or the ways of the kingdom. First, the expansion of the kingdom. You will see in your bulletin and up here on the screen there is a map. I need maps. It helps me to kind of outline how things are going, especially in passages like this. Uh, this is a map from the ESV Study Bible. And if you look at this map, uh, there is a gray region. It's a little hard to decipher, but that was David's kingdom at the beginning of his reign. And then there is the green region, which is much bigger. And that is David's kingdom at the end of his reign. What 2 Samuel chapter 8 is basically doing is showing us how he got from the small gray region to the larger green region. What were the military victories and other victories that were accomplished to help him grow the kingdom of Israel to encompass the land that God had promised to them? Now, I put in there these red uh, boxes with verses so you can kind of see. So we'll start with the Philistines and then move to Moab and then it will go up here and in this area, so that you can kind of follow along as we go. So first, let's look at the first battle in verse 1. Look with, there with me, if you would, 8-1. After this, um, the this is very important, because what it means is after what just happened in chapter 7. And what just happened in chapter 7 was the Davidic covenant. And what happened in the Davidic covenant is that God promised to bless David's kingship and to bless David's kingdom. And so David goes out on this military campaign, believing the promises of God to expand 
the people of God over the promised land. So it says, after this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amah out of the hand of the Philistines. Uh, we don't know what Metheg Amah is. Maybe it was a strategic territory or a strategic city, but David took possession of it. We also know from the book of 1 Chronicles that David took the capital city of the Philistines. Up to this point, if you remember, the Philistines were constantly harassing Israel and the people of God. They were attacking Israel on multiple occasions. As a matter of fact, when David takes the throne over Israel, the Philistines attack David not just once, but twice. And there's this promise that was given to David that we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 3, uh, that by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all of their enemies. And so we see through this attack, they subdue the Philistines. Now we read of the Philistines later in the Bible, but they are never again a military threat to Israel. We move now on to the second battle in verse 2. It says, And he, being David, defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. This might be the hardest verse to swallow in this passage because it gives more detail than the other battles. But what we read about in here is that David takes the, the prisoners of war, the, 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 uh, the soldiers from the other military, from the Moabites, and he divides them into three camps or three lines. And two of those he puts to death unless a third of them live and go back to the camp. Now that seems harsh to us and cruel to us, but commentators have pointed out that it may not be the case. The New American commentator says, in spite of all appearances, such an action probably was considered compassionate in contrast to the options of killing all the prisoners. After all, many of David's enemies were permitted to live and return to their families. What's interesting about this uh, story about David's defeat of the Moabites is it's actually a fulfillment of a promise that God had made. I don't know if you are familiar with this story, if you remember the story, but King Balak uh, who was king of the Moabites, told ba King Balaam, excuse me, told Balak uh, to curse the people of God. But Balak couldn't do it because, uh, because God was speaking to him and said, no, I will bless the people of God. I will bless Israel, so bless them. But, but Balak insisted, I think I mixed up the names, I'm sorry. King Balak mixed, insisted that the people of God be cursed and that they be destroyed. So in Balaam's final oracle, he says this. He says, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. And so here in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 2, it is showing the fulfillment of this promise to destroy the Moabites or to at least subdue the Moabites who have sought to attack and to destroy the Israelites. In verse 3, David now takes the campaign northward, if you look at the map in your bulletin or up on the screen. Verse 3 says, David also defeated Hedadezar, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. This, this acknowledgement of the river Euphrates is extremely important. It's a key phrase for the people of God, Israel. 
The first time the river Euphrates is mentioned in the Bible is in the creation account in Genesis chapter 2. But then it is mentioned uh, next in Genesis chapter 15 in the Abrahamic covenant in which God is establishing his people through Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 15, it says this, the Lord said, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offsprings, I give this land from the river of Egypt, the Nile to the great river, the river Euphrates. And so if you look on the map up here, uh, God is basically promising land from the Nile down here over to the Euphrates, which comes up here and goes this way, uh, but most of this is desert. And so it's basically this land right here that is the promised land that God promises to them. So Abraham comes down and he goes to the region of Hebron and he starts to fulfill this promise of possessing the promised land by buying a property that has a cave on it. And he buys that property because he buries his wife, Sarah, in that cave. Well, as the story goes on, uh, they start to multiply and they're actually, uh, they actually have to move down to Egypt because of, of a famine. And while they're in Egypt, they grow into this great people. God liberates them from Egypt and is bringing them back towards the promised land. And God reaffirms the promise to Moses, who is leading them out of the land of Egypt, back to the promised land. And here, the word Euphrates, again, it says, he says this, and I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. And so he's reaffirming Abraham's promise to Moses. He then reaffirms it to Moses' successor, Joshua. In Joshua 1, says, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I will give to you, just as I promised to Moses, from the wilderness and the list Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And so you see God repeating this promise again and again and again to give his people the promised land. And then we get to, uh, and then we get to 1 Kings. And a story that is after what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 8. This is after David has died and when his son Solomon takes the throne. And it says this in 1 Kings 4. It says, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And so the reason why this, the river Euphrates is mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 8 is to spur these memories of the promise that God has made to Abraham and to Moses and to Joshua that he would give them the promised land, which is Israel. Verse 4 continues. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. By hamstringing the horses, he was limiting these horses to agricultural purposes, to farming purposes. They were no longer fit for war and to pull chariots. Now, as David engages in conflict with Zoba, Zoba calls on their neighbors, the Syrians, to come over and help them because they are losing. And that's what we read here in verse 5. And six, verse five says, and when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. That is a huge army. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants of David and brought tribute. 
And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. If you notice here, David is not just defeating people and taking their money. David is establishing dominion. He is spreading out the kingdom of Israel over the promised land. And he is setting up what this passage calls garrisons. Uh, These garrisons are outposts of the kingdom of Israel, where David will put troops to protect and to keep order in the region and to do the will of the king in in that region. And so as the peoples and territories are coming under David's kingship, he's establishing these outposts of the kingdom of Israel to exercise dominion. Verse 7 and 8 now returns back uh, to the region of Zobah. It says, And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hedadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betah and from Berathai, cities of Hedadezer, King David took very much bronze. We will actually come back to this passage about the spoils in a little bit. But now it will transition in verses 9 through 12 uh, to a to a different method of, of David extending the kingdom and extending the dominion of Israel. Not, not a way of war, but a way of peace. Verse 9 says, When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hedadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hedadezer and defeated him. For Hedadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. Verse 11. These also King David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. From Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hedadezer, the son of Roheb, king of Zobah. And so what we see in this passage is that there is a king who comes under the reign of David and the kingdom of Israel, not through military loss, but simply by surrendering, which leads us to believe that this could have been the fate of everyone that David had conquered, that people could have simply surrendered to David, could have surrendered to Israel, could have surrendered to the God of the universe who says, this property is set out and marked out for my people Israel. This is what they could have done, but they instead fought against David, fought against Israel, and fought against God himself, and all of them lost horribly. Now in verse 13, David seeks to secure the southern border says, and David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Edom was the descendants of Esau. Uh, Again, this is a fulfillment of multiple prophecies that they will fall to the hands of Israel. Verse 14, then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Again, we're reading that as David conquers a territory, he sets up these garrisons, these outposts of the kingdom of Israel to rule and to reign in those areas. And as impressive as David's expansion is of the kingdom of Israel, it is just a prequel to the expansion of a greater kingdom by a greater king. A kingdom that would not only spread over the Middle East, but would spread over the entire world. 
A king and a kingdom whose weapons are not swords, but love. The greater king, who is a descendant of King David, is King Jesus, whose kingdom has been spreading over the entire world over the past 2,000 years and has conquered nearly a third of the known world. And if you have been so blessed, you have been conquered as well. You have been conquered by King Jesus. You have been subdued by the Lord and brought into his kingdom. You know, a month from now, we will celebrate the coming of our king and the coming of his kingdom when we sing together that familiar song, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. How far? As far as the curse is found. See, King Jesus is advancing his kingdom, and as he expands his kingdom, he establishes garrisons or outposts everywhere he goes. You see, your home that you live in is not simply a home. Your home is a garrison. It is an outpost of the kingdom of God. It is an outpost of light in a neighborhood of spiritual darkness. In your school, he has made your desk an outpost for his kingdom, an outpost of grace and love. At your work, he has made your office or your cubicle or your spot on the floor an outpost of his kingdom of redemption. He has made you, his soldiers, armed with the glorious truths of God's word and the good news of the gospel to be a part of extending his joyful kingdom far as the curse is found. And so we start with the expansion of the kingdom of Israel, which again pales in comparison to the expansion of Christ's kingdom in and through his people, the church today. Secondly, we see the hero of the kingdom. You know, there is a temptation in the Old Testament, many places, David included, to make David or people like David the heroes of the stories. And in some ways, they are subheroes, but they are not the ultimate hero of these stories. Look at verse 6 with me. It says, And David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. It goes on in Chronicles more of the expansion than in verse 14. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Throughout 2 Samuel, we are reminded that it is not David who gives Israel the victory. It is the Lord who gives the victory. It is the Lord who is working in David and through David and outside of David and despite David to accomplish his purposes and fulfill his promises of giving the promised land to the people of God. God has proven himself throughout the Bible to be the hero of every story. If you look at the story of, of Israel coming up out of Egypt, they are they're trying to escape from the most powerful military on the face of the earth, and they have no weapons, and they are not trained in battle. And so the Lord says, you just be still, and I will take care of it. And he wipes out the Egyptian army. As they travel towards the promised land, they are attacked time and time again. And again, the Lord provides, and he wins the victory on their behalf. 
as they're walking along and as, as Moses is giving out the law in Deuteronomy chapter 20, he's talking about the laws concerning warfare. It says, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battling against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Don't be scared. Do not fear or panic or dread them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. David knows that the Lord is the victor of all of the battles. He experienced at a young age when he went up to fight against Goliath. You remember that man that was way bigger than him, way stronger than him, way more experienced than him. I love when David comes out and, and says those epic words to Goliath. He says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. I'm curious, in your life, what battle are you facing right now? Where are you wrestling? Where are you struggling? Do you know that you do not go alone, that the Lord goes with you? See, this refrain, the Lord gave victory to David, is the refrain not only of David's life, not only the refrain of the Old Testament, not only the refrain of the New Testament, it is the refrain of all of the lives of God, people, because whatever victory we have is given to us by the Lord. And so if you have a victory over addictions or victory over self-destructive thoughts or actions, if you have victory in evangelism or reconciliation, it is because the Lord has given you the victory and he is the hero of your story. When I was in seminary, I was applying for a position at New Hope Church on the other side of town, a great church over there. And um, and I was in the midst of studying for, I think it was finals, but I had a really big test the next day. And so I went to fill out this application because the deadline was coming up and I needed to get it done, but I didn't have a lot of time to fill out the application. And so I got to one of the questions on the application, which said, what is Reformed theology? Now, you may not have heard that, that terminology before. If you haven't, that's okay. It's kind of uh, how someone understands the, the story of Scripture. And if you know what Reformed theology is, you know that, that you could answer that question with, with pages upon pages and upon pages of, of information. But I didn't have the time, and so I wrote in the answer uh, what my seminary professors had taught me and shown me throughout the Old Testament, and that is simply that Reformed theology means that God is always the hero. God is always the hero of the stories in the Bible. He's always the hero of the stories of his saints throughout history. He's always your hero. He is always my hero. And so let me ask, do you believe that God is your hero, that God is the hero of your salvation, that God is your hero over Satan and sin and death? If you do, how, how should you respond? How would we respond if we believe that God is the hero? Well, we see how David responds here. Look at verse 7 and 8 with me. It says, And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betah and from Borathai, 
cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. Skip down to verse 10, midway through. It says, And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. From Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. You see, due to David's military success, David accumulated a great amount of wealth. First Chronicles 22 tells us that he acquired, get this, about 7.5 million pounds of gold. 7.5 million pounds of gold. I think it's hold, held its value. Uh, that would be amazing. 75 million pounds of silver. And so what does David do with all of this treasure that comes to him? What we learn is that he gives it to the victor. He knows that the victor is the Lord, and to the victor goes the spoils. And so he dedicates all of it to the Lord to build the temple of God once he passes on. You see, generosity is a thermometer that reveals the temperature of our relationship with the Lord. Generosity is a thermometer that reveals the, temp our, the temperature of our relationship with the Lord. This could be financially or with our time or with our efforts. Generosity reveals a lot about our relationship with the Lord. If a person gives generously and cheerfully, they do so because they believe it all belongs to the Lord because the Lord has accomplished all those things and brought all these good gifts to them. Recently, I had a friend who was um, working in a large factory and uh, a man that was well-dressed walked down the floor, and he stopped at me and said, hey, are you the owner of this company? And the man said, no, I'm not the owner of the company. I am the steward of the company. Now, we would call him the owner, right? But he understood that all of his successes in business were thanks to the Lord. And so he said, my business does not belong to me. My business belongs to God. And I am simply a steward of the business that God has given to me. How you steward the money that God has given to you reveals what you cherish. It reveals where your heart is. It reveals what you believe to be or who you believe to be the hero of your story. So just to recap, we have the expanse of the kingdom through David, throughout the promised land, which points us to the greater expanse of the kingdom of Christ. We have the hero of the kingdom who is not David, but the Lord who gives his people the victory that we might return praise and glory and honor onto him. Finally, we have the way of the kingdom. And so the Lord extends his kingdom and is the hero of his kingdom. But what kind of kingdom is this? Is it a cruel kingdom, a wicked kingdom? Is it a kingdom like all the other kingdoms of the world? Well, let's look together at verse 15. It says, So David reigned over all Israel, including the newly acquired territory and people. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. If you're like me and you read 2 Samuel chapter 8, it may come off or it may appear to you that David is just going around killing innocent people just to take their land, just to take their property. But these were not innocent people at all. Uh, to put it in our own context, uh, it, we, may, we may read this passage and say, man, it feels like Russia is attacking Ukraine. And it just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. But in reality, it's more like the allies attacking Germany. 
You see, the people David defeated were, were not innocent at all. They were steeped in sexual perversions that even in our own culture, we would detest. It's hard to believe, but there are things our culture do not permit that were permitted and celebrated in their culture. Furthermore, in their religious practices, they would sacrifice their own children. They would take their sons and throw them into a burning fire as a sacrifice to their God. These were wicked people with wicked practices, and the God of equity, the God of justice, was coming to their defense, the defense of the powerless and the marginalized, and he was using Israel as an instrument of judgment against the injustice in the world. And so through this, God was not only assuming more of the promised land for his promised people, but God was actually liberating the oppressed in those lands. You see, when God blessed Abraham, he said, I will make you a blessing to be a blessing to the nations. Even Israel conquering these nations was a blessing to those who could not fight for themselves. There's an article I read this week. Uh, It's from 2019 from the Chicago Tribune. And the setting of of what they're writing about is in Berlin, Germany, and it's celebrating D-Day when the Allied forces defeated Germany. And the article says this, that when the chancellor of Germany, Angela Angela Merkel, thanked the Allies for the D-Day invasion and the, quote, liberation of Germany in World War II. Again, this is a German leader saying, thank you for liberating us by defeating us. She might have raised some eyebrows internationally. To those at home in Germany, the statement was unremarkable. They're used to it. There's no denying that the machine guns and howitzers firing at the Allied forces landing in Normandy 75 years ago were manned by German soldiers. But over the decades, Germans' attitudes towards the war have evolved from a sense of defeat to something far more complex. As the generation that elected Adolf Hitler and fought His genocidal war died away. Most Germans today see World War II through the prism of guilt, responsibility, and atonement. I think we can resonate with them with how we have treated uh, Native Americans and African Americans in our own country. It says, in 1985, then West German president Richard von Weizsäcker, I can't say, called the Nazi defeat, his words were, uh, he says, the, the, the Nazi defeat, was Germany's, quote, day of liberation. His words were supported by most Germans and to this day is often cited by politicians and taught in schools. Here's the point again. It says, as we read of these military victories in 2 Samuel chapter 8, as we read of the thousands of soldiers who died, not only is God delivering on his promise to his people to give them the promised land, But God is actually blessing these nations by liberating them from tyrannical rulers who are oppressing them. God uses Israel as an instrument of justice to free the oppressed. 2 Samuel 8 continues with the officials of the kingdom. Look in verse 16. It says, Joab the son of Zariah was over the army, and Jehoshaphat the son of Ahalud was recorder. So the recorder would write down everything that was happening in the kingdom, all that God was doing, all that God was up to, so that future generations could look back and say, wow, look at what our God has done for us. It was also served to be a warning for the people of God as they recorded what God was doing to not join in the practices of the people that God had just brought judgment upon. Matter of fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, It says this, it says, when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, 
Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? That I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burned their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. You see, the ways of the world are not the ways of the kingdom of God. It is drastically different than the ways of the world. We are to be a people who administer justice and equity. We are to be a people of integrity and mercy. We are to be a people of compassion and of love. These are not the ways of the world, but they are the ways of the kingdom of God. They are happy and holy ways of the kingdom of God, which have been counted, which we have been counted a part of if we have trusted in Jesus. Verse 17, it continues and says, And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abathar, were priests. These priests would have been from the line of Aaron. They would have served to ensure that the nation of Israel was being faithful to worship the Lord as he has prescribed. It continues and says, And Sarai was secretary, maybe for the priests, maybe an assistant for Jehoshaphat. And Benaiah, the son of Jehodiah, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Benaiah. Benaiah, there's a lot of hard names in this chapter. Benaiah uh, was actually a military legend. He not only defeated a lot of uh, Israel's enemies, uh, but there's a story of him actually defeating a lion in a pit full of snow. I don't know how that works. But anyways, this guy became David's bodyguard and was the lead of the bodyguards. And then it ends by saying, and David's sons were priests. This is a bit confusing because uh, David's sons were not from the line of Aaron. They wouldn't be priests. And so even... The King James Version translates it chief rulers, or the NIV, the revised version, calls it royal advisors. These were, what his sons did is they were probably consultants or advocates for the priests. Again, showing the priority of worshiping the Lord and the kingdom of Israel. Now, why does all this matter? Why does this list of people, why does it matter that David is trying to work with justice and equity? Well, it shows that David is being thoughtful that David is ensuring that the ways of the kingdom are guarded and applied, not only in Jerusalem, but throughout his kingdom. That they're carried out. That the ways of God become the ways of the kingdom that he is in. When, when I was not a Christian, uh, I was a part of a ministry called Young Life. You've heard about it. And I would go over to my Young Life leader's house sometimes, and I would play ping pong with him in his garage. Uh, he didn't live in a very big house or a nice house, uh, but it was a beautiful house to me because it truly was an outpost of the kingdom of God. It was a house that was happy. It was a house that was holy. It was a place where there was repentance and forgiveness. It was a place of love and compassion. It was a place that reflected the ways of the kingdom of God, and it was compelling to me, and it was attractive to me, and it authenticated the gospel before I even grasped the gospel for myself. Christian, your home is an outpost for the kingdom of God. It displays the beauty that has become maybe normal to you, but is attractive to those who walk in darkness. 
2 Corinthians 14 tells us our victory is for this purpose. It says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ. Earlier this year at our, at our annual meeting, we started a campaign called Matthew Meals, and I have not done a great job of keeping that in front of you and encouraging you towards that, but those who have done it, I've heard amazing stories. Uh, basically, what a Matthew Meal is, is you invite someone over who doesn't know Jesus or maybe doesn't go to church or a gospel preaching church, and you just have dinner with them. It's really not that complicated. And, and, and I've heard stories uh, time and again of, of people who, who maybe didn't have an intention of bringing up spiritual things, but are asked questions about, about their faith and are able to share the good news of Jesus. Let, let me re-encourage you and re-encourage myself to invite the world into our garrisons, to invite the world into our outposts of, of the kingdom of God, to invite our friends, our classmates, our co-workers, that they might smell the aroma of Christ and experience the beauty of the kingdom of God. And through that, know the hero of that kingdom and be consumed in the expansion of his kingdom. Let me end with this. I was, um, on Wednesday, I was visiting with a, a group of folks from the church. You know who you are. Don't raise your hand. And uh, they felt, they felt uh, discouraged by the election results. Uh, maybe you were discouraged as well. Whether you were encouraged or discouraged by the election results this past Tuesday, this passage today reminds us that our hope is not ultimately in a political kingdom or an earthly kingdom. It's our hope is in a greater kingdom, a surer kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. It is the kingdom of our hero King Jesus, who lived in this world and taught us the beautiful ways of the kingdom of God and then opened the entrance to his kingdom, not by killing his enemies, but by being killed by his enemies upon the cross, that his enemies, who are you and me, may become his friends, may become his peasants, may come under his glorious reign. And then he rose again from the dead to give us new life to live in this kingdom, not only today, but for all eternity. And now we await the return of our king. And when he comes again, he will bring the fullness of his kingdom where there will be no more wars, no more justice, no more inequality, no more sadness, and no more death. But till that time, may we seek the expansion of his kingdom. May his kingdom conquer more of our hearts, more of our family, more of our workplaces and more of our neighborhoods as we proclaim to the world and to ourselves the hero of the kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that you are faithful to your promises, that you did indeed deliver on the promised land that you promised to Abraham a thousand years before this. And because we see that you are faithful to your promises back then, we know you are faithful to your promises today. And there awaits for us a greater promised land. And we long for that day, King Jesus. But until that time, Lord, pray that you would make our houses, our desks, our offices, outposts of the kingdom of Christ that people might see the beauty and the glory of Jesus and be conquered by him as you have conquered us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.